0: to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about viticulture and enology.
0: Ooh, those are fancy words. Yeah, we're just talking about wine. Yeah, viticulture, the cultivation or culture of grapes. Enology, a science that deals with wine and winemaking. And wine itself is considered,
1: quote, our original alcoholic beverage dating back
0: 8,000 years, according to the book Inventing Wine by Paul Lukacs. It's also the only thing that they drink in uh, Game of Thrones, I think. Oh, yeah, I, I don't think wine. I've ever seen anyone drink water. I think they just drink wine. Probably because the water is full of poison. Full of dragon poison. Yes, well, anyway, um, wine, you know, it's, it's more than just the boxed wine that I may or may not buy on a regular basis. Wine is actually linked inextricably, according to Anne B. Matassar, with religious worship, revelry, camaraderie and upper class entitlement. And she says that it's often been a beverage reserved for men of privilege. Yeah, she writes in her book, women of wine, the
1: rise of women in the global wine industry, that women, regardless of social standing, were associated with wine's excesses rather than its benefits. Inebriated women were frequently linked to indiscriminate sexuality, promiscuity, and adultery. So right from the get-go in our conversation about wine and
0: women, It starts off on a bit of a sexist foot. Yeah, Sally would not approve of this. She would be like, oh heavens. Sally, your mom? Sally, my mom, uh, drinks, uh, quite her fair share of wine. We're, we're big wine drinkers in our family. I say we, but I really mean my mom and her sisters. So wine would not be a stuff your mom never told you. Right. Well, not that we've talked about it, but I learned from the best. Let's put it that way. Well, Sally is among uh, uh, plenty of
1: friends in the United (laughs) States. Americans really love their wine. In fact, in 2012... 342 million cases of wine were consumed, which is a 7% increase from
0: five years ago. So not only are we drinking a lot of wine, we're drinking more wine than ever before in the United States. And by volume, we Americans consume more wine than any other nation, actually. But not so surprisingly, on a per
1: capita basis, the French, for instance, drink a lot more wine than we do. They drink five bottles for every one that we drink.
0: And also as a nation, we Americans are just as likely to reach for wine as for beer, which is actually a huge shift from 20 years ago. We're drinking a lot more wine now.
1: Yeah, and some think that the spike in our wine consumption is due to two things. First of all, the recession, because, let's face it, Two Buck Chuck from Trader Joe's can get you pretty drunk on a dime. (laughs) And they also attribute it to changing preferences of... Millennials, because a 2012 Gallup poll found a 30 point drop in beer preference among people under 30. So, hmm. youngins
0: like you and I, Caroline, are really enjoying wine more. Interesting. I wonder. I wonder what's behind the drop in beer, not just the rise in wine, but the drop in beer also. I mean, they also attribute this um, rise in wine loving to drinkers over 50. And women in particular. Yeah, women love wine.
1: One of the reasons why we wanted to do this episode on wine is because I feel like at least if you were to choose an, a type of alcoholic beverage that women are going to go for if they walk up to an open bar, it's going to be a glass of wine, probably a glass of white wine, or maybe a vodka tonic, but that's another episode. <laughs> um But women buy 8 out of 10 bottles of wine consumed at home, according to the magazine Wine. Wine business,
0: Yeah, and according to that Gallup poll that you talked about, um, 52% of women prefer wine over beer, and that's up from 43% 20 years ago. Now, looking at men, only 20% of men choose wine as their favorite boozy beverage, but even that is up 5% from 20 years ago. Yeah, and to me, the fact that women comprise an overwhelming
1: majority of the wine buyers for the wine that we have in our households and also wine drinkers It stands in contrast to that quote from Women and Wine about the history Mm -hmm. long ago where women were associated only with wine's excesses. And as we'll see in the making of wine, in the viticulture, women have often been relegated to the side, only allowed to do certain smaller tasks, whereas the making of wine has been more of a thing for men. And yet today... We're drinking more of it, but maybe because of that colored history that we have with wine, women are still considered a niche market.
0: Yeah. In a lot of ways. We are. And that's interesting. When I was reading all this stuff about how we are this niche market, I mean, I I think it's obvious when you, when you Google anything about women and wine, a lot of what you get is this really sappy, Advertising that's like women and wine and shoes and women and wine and baking and women and wine and tools. I don't know. But, you know, like I said, me growing up, I was surrounded by female wine drinkers. My dad didn't drink wine. So I've always thought of like wine as a more feminine beverage.
1: And yet the industry is just now catching up to that. For instance, in 2006, we have the launch of Wine Adventure which proclaims itself the first wine magazine for women. But side note, why there needs to be a wine magazine
0: for women, I don't really understand. Right. And that's kind of what slate writer Mike Steinberger was talking about in the 2005 piece, where he really seemed confused to hear the news that wine wasn't already a happily co-ed party. And he said that to suggest that women have a distinct set of grievances about how wine is critiqued ignores the fact that quite a few men are equally disaffected and often leads to that kind of patronizing, saccharine journalism that most women and men rightly abhor. And he said that the wine market has a consumer gap, not a gender gap. He said it's not so much that we need to, like, capture this niche market of women or, you know, older women, younger women, whoever. It's more that different consumers are looking for different things because there's the whole thing about, like... Men wanting to buy wine according to their fancy pants ratings, whereas women are maybe more inclined to buy wine that they want to share with their friends.
1: Yeah, I mean, experts and marketers have paid a lot of attention to how men and women shop for wine. And so typically they say that the way that women select wine has a lot more to do with the food that's going to go with it, the setting And what the bottle looks like rather than wine credentials like vintage charts and the acquisition process and ratings that they say that men are more drawn
0: to. Yeah, I will fully admit here in front of you and everybody else that I love a good typeface on a bottle of wine. Uh, I mean, I tend to go for like Shiraz or Syrah, like. but I think I've said this on the podcast before, I can only drink red wine like If I'm out, I can only have a glass. If I'm at home, I have to be already in my pajamas sitting down because it will put me to sleep. But, like, there's this bottle of wine that has, a a, like, a luchador mask, a lucha libre mask on the cover, or the cover, like, it's an album, on the front label, and I just, I love that. It's like getting a Happy Meal toy as an adult. Well, while your attraction to
1: certain types of labels definitely meshes with the research, Caroline, you are not of a stereotype that women prefer light wines women uh, supposedly a woman's wine is a pinot grigio
0: whereas a man's wine is a broad-shouldered cabernet ooh Sal- sally would sally would agree with these stereotypes she she drinks a nice pinot grigio every night with uh, with ice cubes with ice cubes. Oh, for sure.
1: Nice. Well, that meshes very well, Caroline, with this description in Wine Business as to what women want in wine. Wine Business says, the short answer is something balanced and drinkable, enjoyable, and easy to deal with. Screw the unnecessary
0: complexities. Well, I found that uh, that piece to be kind of obnoxious. Well, sure, because it sounds like women will just drink anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it also framed wine drinking in terms of um, like peacekeeping and conflicts and, and things like that, which was very strange and I thought very pandering. And
1: well, maybe that's an example of the saccharine journalism that that Slate writer was calling out, saying why why all these metaphors with wine writing? Can we not just
0: talk about some grapes? I know. I mean, yeah, they, there really is this movement toward. Treating women wine drinkers as, you know, we're all like part of this weird airhead brigade that doesn't care about the wine itself, you know, or, well, I mean, I'm saying this is someone who buys wine according to labels, but whatever, whatever. They're treating us all like, you know, we, we only care about the name of the wine itself or like it's appealing to some like girly sex in the city culture.
1: Right. It, it's, uh, okay. So w- what has happened here is that marketers have taken the, finding, the overwhelming finding that women want, say, something balanced and drinkable. They want ripe fruit forward wines without a lot of tannin and oak as, okay, well, you know, the way we're going to sell this is we're going to almost inflate that to a chiclet proportion because I feel like you walk through the wine section at the grocery store and you could take labels from these wines that are overtly marketed toward women and slap them on a beach read. Yeah. And you wouldn't know the difference because it's lots of... Pink, lots of stilettos, ponytail silhouettes with names like Mommy Juice, Maid Housewife, and then, to me, the worst, which is this line called B, B B-E, from Treasury Wine Estates. It's targeting women 21 to 34. So our demographic, Caroline, this, Mm -hmm. this wine is for us, and their flavors are flirty, which is a pink moscato, bright, a Pinot Grigio, fresh, an unoaked Chardonnay and radiant a Riesling. And then all of the language describing it is like a page ripped out of uh,
0: Sex in the City. It's so funny because I've, I've had Bright, but I wasn't aware of any of this that we're just talking about. Like I wasn't aware that it was marketed to women or that it was supposed to be cutesy or anything like that. I just thought, oh, well, it's just called this. I don't think I realized. How was it? Do you remember? I don't. It was winish. It was very winey. It <laughs> tasted like wine.
1: Well, the fact that it was winey and just tasted like wine, you know, it didn't really have any distinctive flavor profiles is what a lot of people would argue that it's actually doing a disservice to women who like wine because a lot of these wines marketed to women are just plonk. It's not very good. It's hyper sweet
0: and not high quality. Yeah, not just plonk. Uh, Bloomberg writer Ellen McCoy says that it's neutered commercial plonk. So they're really trying to sell you on those stiletto pictures more than they're trying to sell you on the what's in the bottle. Which, you know, I I've purchased wine before like if I'm going to someone's house and I, I just, you know, I'm not buying it because it's so fancy and I want to give them an incredible wine to remember me by. But, like, you know, I went to go stay with my aunt Savannah one time and she's the middle sister and so I bought her a bottle of middle sister wine. Ah, so like, you know, I was like, "Eh, well, it might not be any good or maybe it is, but this is just... But it showed that you were thinking
1: about her. It was more of a a gift in that way. Um, Another facet of the more recent approach to wine marketing toward women is how it's not just been a focus on labels and the titling of things like middle sister, etc., but also in how they're starting to peddle wine specifically to working moms as here's your mental health break I just need a glass of wine and I say it in that voice jokingly but I do understand the relaxation of having a glass of wine after work I understand where that marketing is coming from but I don't know that it's saying here women, drink all of this wine, it's gonna make all of the gender wage gap and the frustration with the <laughs> you know, the imbalance of
0: housework and child care just magically go away for the next forty five minutes. Oh God. Yeah, no, I've I have totally come home and popped open my box of wine and poured myself a triple quadruple glass but i mean this is not a joke this is serious uh there are uk health experts who recently noted that a rise there was a rise in alcohol related deaths among women in their 30s and 40s and it's linked to this increase in wine consumption
1: yeah so in a way that kind of marketing persistent marketing could be doing us a health disservice in the long run saying, you know what, it's wine, it's got those antioxidants, right. it's gonna give you a mental health break. Just do it, just drink it. It doesn't matter the quality, just drink all of this really sugary stuff and you'll be fine. Although, moderate consumption at a glass and a half of wine per day has been linked to positive health effects in women for things like preventing bone loss as we read over at NPR but again it's all about
0: moderation yeah and i mean i i actually stopped there was a period <laughs> there was a period where i was going home and like having a glass of red wine every night not that that's like excessive or bad or terrible or anything by any means but it it got to a point where i was like why am i doing this I'm doing this because I've, I've had like a string of really stressful days at work or whatever. Or I just got out of traffic or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, maybe I should just try other relaxation methods like a bath, like some yoga, or just lying on the couch even for a minute when you get home. Yeah. I just, I, I wonder if the messages
1: are being mixed in terms of the, with alcoholism and wine, it seems like. It's easier for women to, and I say this in giant air quotes, get away with it because, oh, we're just having, we're just having a glass of wine or two glasses of wine or three glasses of wine. And oh, there's the bottle.
0: Yes. And it's part of this like cultural idea of what is acceptable and sophisticated and normal and feminine and female when it comes to like drinking and relaxing. Because if somebody goes home every night and downs half a bottle of vodka, you're like, "Oh, well, you have a problem." And if someone goes home and drinks a six-pack of beer, it would say,
1: "Oh, that's so unladylike. Why would you be doing that?"
0: Yeah, and you're going to get a beer good.
1: Exactly. But there's no we don't hear about wine bellies. Right. You know? Um so that that is something it's something that I have started to keep in mind more for myself because I've experienced the same thing as you, Caroline, of getting into those patterns of how easy it is to go home, have the wine, and while, again, in moderation it's not a bad thing, I'm uncomfortable when I realize that it's so much a part of my routine, I'm Mm -hmm. almost reliant on it. Yeah. That I don't like.
0: And often what you need, and I mean, let's not sound like a broken record here, but often what you need is like a break. When you're stressed out like that, you need a break. Well, I mean, you know, if I get home from work and after I've been sitting in traffic or whatever, it's just well, not just as easy, but it's much healthier to head down to the gym downstairs at my apartment complex and get on the, you know, the stationary bike for 30 minutes. That's the same kind of break, but I've exercised instead of, you know, downing a bunch, like half a bottle of wine. Exactly. And just as one
1: final side note, rather than just springing always for the two buck chuck, one thing I am trying to get better at is learning more about wine and learning how to enjoy wine, because when you have a glass of really, really, really great wine, mm-hmm. you are going to drink it more slowly and you're going to savor it, whereas you might, if, if, if you're poured a glass of flirty pink Moscato, you're probably just going to gulp it down. <laughs> Because it might not be so good. But speaking of taste, getting, getting back to this conversation on men, women, and wine, we've established the stereotype of women preferring the lighter, sweeter wines and men wanting something bolder and redder. Do men and women taste wine differently? Are women just drawn to wine because there's something in our palate working differently than men's?
0: It it seems to be so. It seems to be that men and women do taste differently. And I mean, one thing to look at is that wines themselves are often described as masculine or feminine in their weight and flavor.
1: Yeah. And for people who are deeply immersed in wine culture, there is this idea that women do have a finer Palette. For instance, Matt Kramer of Wine Spectator told Ad Age that women have more taste buds than men, which makes them inherently better tasters and then in another article in wine business it says as women wine judges we might be unfairly harsh we're quick to dismiss any wine that comes out with sharp elbows too much tannin too much acid or too much wood and increasingly too much alcohol so that seems to be an example of how perhaps our tongues are a little bit more sensitive to certain flavor profiles
0: Right, and sensory psychologist Marsha Pelchat at the Monell Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia backs up some of these taste differences. She says that women have more acute senses of smell. We flat out prefer less carbonation in wine. And we tend to be more sensitive to bitter flavors and, just like butterflies and hummingbirds, prefer slightly sweeter wines. But when
1: Letty Teague, who is a wine columnist for the Wall Street Journal, when she sought out an answer to a scientific answer as to whether men and women women taste wine differently, and she spoke with a number of sommeliers, some of whom were husband-and-wife couples, to kind of get that his-and-hers comparison. Her conclusion was that when it comes to wine tasting, the palate seems to be more a product of exposure and training rather than biological sex. So while there might be some sensory differences in the male versus the female tongue, With the preference for sweeter wines, for instance, I can understand how that exposure can change your preference because I remember... In my younger years, in college days, of course, I wasn't being exposed to many fine wines. And from the get-go, I would want something more of like a sweeter Riesling or a lot of white wines. I hated Merlot. But now as I've gotten older and I've had more wine, I drink almost exclusively red. And I want it to be a richer taste. I don't really like sweet all that much anymore.
0: Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think the same could go for any type of thing you are training yourself to imbibe. I mean, you know, it's the same for beer. I never liked beer when I was younger. And then when I went to college, not to, like, completely give away to my parents when I started drinking, (laughs) but when I went away to college, you know, I'm just drinking the free junk that's in the keg. And, you know, I hated it. And I would try to drink, like, you know, vodka tonics and stuff like that. Well, like, as I got older, I really, really started to like better beer. And now I spend way too much money on beer. And it's funny because I dated this, this well, this jerk who we were talking about beers one time, and he actually asked me, so uh what guy in your life introduced you to good beer? So after he picked himself up off the ground, I informed him that I just developed a palate for better beer as I got older. Yeah, and it it does make such a difference.
1: And I also don't want to seem like I'm trying to gang up on white wines. I've had experiences too of drinking a better pinot grigio and or a better chardonnay and it does make a difference mm-hmm. and it, even though that's not normally what I spring for tasting it I get it. It's delicious. Yeah. It's buttery. It's light. It's summer. <laughs> no, not all that, but <laughs> but it was still very refreshing. Um, and I mentioned that uh, Letty T. talked with sommeliers, both male and female. And the thing is, is that women are not only making strides in terms of consumption and the wine industry catching up slowly but surely and in kind of roundabout ways to women liking and appreciating wine, maybe in different ways than men do. But we are also making strides in the actual production of wine. Although women have been involved in viticulture
0: for a long, long time. Well, I mean, women may have been involved in viticulture for a long time, but it's not like we were always permitted to do some of the, uh, you know, heavy lifting, so to speak. Uh, Winemaking itself has actually long been uh, gender segregated. Women have been not only considered bad luck for the wine, but we've been considered too chatty and inefficient and weak.
1: Yeah, a lot of times women would not be allowed to harvest, crush, or stomp the grapes for fear that our delicate physique would mess things up. But we were allowed to pick and sort grapes. But then when it came time to age the wine in the cellar, ladies, you keep out. Because, and I tweeted this out when I read this in the book, Women of Wine, because I found it so hilarious, some wineries even to this day still ban women from being around fermenting wine because of the long-held menstrual myth that women on their periods can turn wine to vinegar. Uh,
0: <laughs> that's uh that's interesting. Um, because I feel like I am around a lot more wine on my period.
1: <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> I have a feeling a lot of women can relate. Uh, but that's not to say though that there weren't a number of early pioneers. We found an article over at the Wine Institute just highlighting some women in the US and specifically in California who were making wine and running vineyards In the 19th century, such as in 1886, we have 31-year-old Josephine Tyson who founded a
0: California winery, which was pretty unheard of in the day. Yeah, and she was actually the first woman to do so, not to mention the youngest, who did not, note, inherit it from a family member, like a husband or a father. Yeah, if you go
1: over to Italy or France um, for those really old winemaking cultures... The women who would be involved in the family business, even if they were next in line to inherit it, a lot of times because of those outdated ideas about women really not being up to snuff for making wine would often be pushed to the side and running the vineyard. But um, gradually over time, clearly, that has changed. And even in the 1890s, I thought this was uh, pretty interesting, around 10% of California winemakers were women. So we headed west and started making wine. And in the past 50 years, there has been... A lot of progress, especially starting in the 1960s. Women really began emerging as prominent winemakers, owning wineries, and assuming management positions outside of those family ties. Yeah, in
0: 1973, we have Marianne Graff, who becomes the first American woman to graduate in enology from a university. And moving forward up to the 1990s, we see the growth of women in the ultra-premium luxury wine industry.
1: Oh well, that sounds fancy. I'm imagining them in turtlenecks and uh, blazers with the crests on them. And don't forget, like, the, the elbow pad things. Oh, yes, some elbow pads. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, in 1998, Diane Nury became the first woman chairman of the Wine Institute since it began in 1934. And the same year, Napa Valley Vintners and Sonoma County Wineries Association also elected women board presidents, For the first time. And then in the year 2000. In the year 2000. The first woman was admitted to the world's oldest Bordeaux Brotherhood, which is called the Girard of Saint-Emilion. And that was actually a really big deal because this brotherhood had been around for centuries. As a man only thing, going back to what, uh, the author of Women and Wine was talking about in terms of wine being that long-standing beverage of men of privilege and they would have these drinking groups, kind of like, uh, if we think about cigar clubs where, you know, men go and like have cigars and expensive scotch and such and it would be the wine versions of that and finally in 2000, mm-hmm. a woman was admitted.
0: Yeah, it's a shame that all that wine's gonna turn to vinegar. Well, and it's also
1: a shame that when she was interviewed about it, I don't have her name in front of me, but when she was interviewed about it, uh, and someone brought up feminism, she was quick to dismiss it. She was, uh, put off at the idea that it had anything to do with gender equality whatsoever. So,
0: yeah, there's that. Yeah, well, I mean, some, now, nowadays, nowadays, in the in the 2013 year uh, some of our most prominent wine writers importers and winery owners are women uh one of those is Mary Ewing Mulligan who's the president of Manhattan's prestigious international wine center and in terms
1: of taste making Smolliers are seeing more and more women joining their ranks, possibly helped along by those stereotypes about women having those finer palettes. and also just with women having more interest and opportunities getting in there because uh, the smollier is, uh, I mean, talk about a niche mm-hmm. occupation. Um, and Bloomberg reported earlier in 2013 that of the prestigious Institute Of Masters of Wine Group in London, there are now 87 women among the 287 worldwide masters living in 23 countries. And in both 2011 and 2012, there were more new
0: female masters of wine than male. And nowadays, more than 40% of sommeliers are women, although it hasn't always been an easy climb One Maeve Pescara, who's a wine director for several restaurants in several states, says that it's basically taken women uh, a generation to work up through the ranks of sommeliers because they just face such bad attitudes.
1: Yeah, she said many people used to think that I was just the hostess. But a lot of people, though, who are growing familiar with uh, women sommeliers working say that They actually prefer sometimes women to be selecting and suggesting wines for their fine foods because uh, they say that women tend to have a more hospitable approach, which could actually help take some of the snooty edge off of wine culture. Yeah, because I don't know about you, Caroline, but it is rare that I would find myself in a restaurant that would have a sommelier (laughs) (laughs) approach my
0: table, at which point I would say, I'll have the house (laughs) red. Yeah, no, I actually just had sort of an embarrassing moment the other night. I was out at dinner and, you know, having the right. okay obviously, I'm not in a restaurant with a sommelier either, but having the right server to kind of walk you through, you know, if they know your preferences, having the right person can make quite a difference, because the other night, my boyfriend and I had this waiter who was so, like, spastic and clearly not really paying attention to what we were saying. He didn't really care about us. He had these other big tables that he was worried about, and he, like, rushes over, and he's like, well, you know, did you want a glass of wine or something, or, like, a bottle? And I was like, well, yeah, I was considering having a glass. And, I mean, he just rushed me through the whole thing, and at the end, I mean, I got this wine that was just so-so. I had no idea what I was drinking. And uh, so it can be nice to have, you know, a kind... Uh, empathetic, sympathetic person walking you through the wine list. Right, because when you know more
1: about the wine, you appreciate it more. It probably pairs better with the food, and it makes the entire experience more pleasant and worth the $16
0: plus that you're spending for that tiny bit of liquid in that giant glass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> why are they so giant? I mean, I know why they are, but... Oh, I like the giant glass. I do, too. I'm afraid I'm going to break them. I I do have a set of really, really nice, like, giant wine glasses that I do not pour the recommended amount into.
1: (laughs) Fill it fill it on up. It's like the (laughs) fishbowl. Yeah. Fishbowl glasses. It's like a hurricane. Sometimes you have fishbowl glass kinds of weeks. It just happens. So that's about it for our conversation on women in wine. We've looked at wine from the drinking and sort of taking it back to the making and the taste making of it. So now we want to hear from women wine drinkers out there, and men wine drinkers, too. Guys, do you like a white wine as much as a broad-shouldered Cabernet? I love that description for some reason. Broad-shouldered. Broad-shouldered Cabernet. Um, And uh, thoughts as well on this normalization of not just the drinking of wine, but the drinking of wine to excess. And for Europeans listening, too, do we sound like a couple of wine prudes sitting here? because we're fretting a little bit over having a glass a day
0: well to be fair I'm also calorie counting at the moment so yeah I, I sometimes I, I just I put wine with, you know, water. I'm just like,
1: well, it's, it's it's in its own calorie-free category. So with that, send us your thoughts. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also message us on Facebook and tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, here's some letters we got a couple letters here in response to our episode on women and negotiation, which was our kickoff to our special four-part series on Lean In, airing on Fridays, which you should really check out if you haven't already. And this first letter is from Rihanna. She writes, I took a lot of psychology classes in college, and in one of them, the graduate assistant passed out a photocopied chapter of Women Don't Ask. It was so eye-opening to me that I've kept the chapter ever since and have tried to actively fight my urge to avoid confrontation and negotiate even though it scares me. I have conflicting feelings on this, though, because as a millennial, I've heard constantly over the past several years that I'm entitled, demanding, impatient, and ambitiously disloyal. So the thought that maybe I just expect more than I deserve has kept me from negotiating as much as I could because I'm not sure I'm really worth what I think I am. What do you think about that conflict? Being a woman who in perception and reality probably doesn't know how to ask for what she wants or deserves as well as being a millennial who is perceived as whiny and demanding and unrealistic how do we reconcile those two facts or perceptions I think that the way to reconcile that is to still follow those four steps that we outlined in the negotiation podcast on how to really understand and evaluate your own worth and make the approach without coming across As being too entitled or demanding.
0: What do you think? Right. You can't, you can't appear like you're just out for yourself. You know, you have to express your worth, not in a dollar figure, but your worth in terms of what you have contributed and what you can contribute over and above. Um, And then you can make it about the dollar figure.
1: Exactly. I think that making the collaborative approach, as we talked about in the podcast, will probably serve you doubly, not just as a woman, but as a millennial woman.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I mean, like, I'm so tired of this millennial stuff, like, (laughs) it's this you know, every older generation thinks the generations below them are just idiots, so you're already, I hate to say it, like, fighting an uphill battle, as far as stereotypes go, of this generation. So, all of that to say, I mean, I didn't mean to sound, like, all negative and jumpy about it, but... You know, all of that to say, you kind of even have to work a little bit harder at the negotiating table to let them know that you are there for them. You're there to make the company better. You're there to, you know, do the best job that you possibly can and really help them out with your impressive skill set. Um, you know, so they don't just think you're some college kid coming to wine to them. Exactly. So good luck negotiating, Rihanna. And thanks for writing in. And I have a letter here from Kat. Uh, she says, I'm 23 years old and in the second job of my career. With my first job right after graduating from college, I didn't even try to negotiate my salary. I wasn't particularly confident in my skills and was only slightly knowledgeable, thanks to my mom and information from salary.com, about how much I should expect to make. I pushed back a bit with my second and current job, but was shut down almost immediately because of my relatively little amount of experience. Within the first month, I'd already gotten lots of feedback that I've been doing such a great job, and it's only been getting better. I actually discussed this very topic with a coworker yesterday and kind of regret not pushing back for more money, especially given all the positive feedback I've been getting. My coworker and I were discussing how long I should wait, if at all, until I approach my lead for a potential raise, how to go about doing it, etc. Whenever I decide to pull the trigger on that deal, I'll definitely be keeping the points you ladies made in mind, which is awesome. Kat, I hope you, uh, I wish you the best of luck and I hope you keep us posted. Yeah, and thanks to everyone
1: who's been keeping us posted with your emails. discovery.com is where you can send them, and also connecting with us on Facebook and Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. You can also follow us on Tumblr, StuffMomNeverToldYou.Tumblr.com, as well as our wonderful Instagram. We are at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And speaking of negotiation and lean in, don't forget this Friday is the fourth and final chapter in our series all about bossiness so tune in for that and tune in as well to youtube where you can check us out four times a week youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you and don't forget to subscribe for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com